Today's show is sponsored by Mac Weldon. They make the most comfortable hoodies, sweatpants, underwear, and socks you'll ever wear. I'm wearing them right now. Clara, do I look comfortable? You certainly do. I don't even know what color my socks are today. They are a slightly jazzy, pink and some gray because I'm comfortable with myself. I feel great because they're really comfortable socks. I smell great. I'm not going to ask you to smell them, but they are made of antimicrobial something something, which eliminates odor. They're easy to buy. You go to MacWeldon.com. You get 20% off your order with the promo code RECODE. That's MacWeldon.com. Promo code RECODE. Clara is looking at me skeptically, but it does work even better. If you don't like these socks, you hang on to them. MacWeldon will send you your money back. Go to MacWeldon.com. Get 20% off the order with the promo code RECODE. Thank you, MacWeldon. Hello, Clara Jeffrey. Hello. Have you ever done a sock ad before? I have not. Is MacWeldon a person? It's like the name of a person who... Got into socks. I don't know the origin story mm. of Mac Weldon. Yeah, well. no, I don't think anyone who works at Mac Weldon is named Mac Weldon. Mm. I think it's one of those names that's supposed to evoke a certain sockishness. <laughs> vaguely Scottish sockishness. But enough about Mac Weldon, who are fine sponsors. We love them. Let's talk about you, Claire Jeffrey. You're editor in chief of Mother Jones. That's right. I've wanted to do you on this podcast for a long time, so much I had to fly out here and talk to you. So mm. thanks for doing it. I'm not sure that's true. It is totally true. You can go back and look in your DMs, yes. emails, but saying, hey, let's do it. Let's do it's it. It's been a long time coming. Now we're doing it. Many people who listen to this podcast will know what Mother Jones is, but for those who don't, mm-hmm. want to give us the, the sure. two-sentence summary? I mean, it's a nonprofit news organization that uh, was a magazine for a long time, was the first actual general interest magazine to be on the web way back. The publication itself dates back to... 76. And so... 1976. 1976, yes. We're not as old as the Atlantic. Yeah. And so we specialize in investigative journalism and politics and, you know, many other things. So there's a print magazine. Print magazine. I can pay to get that. You can. There's a website. There's a website. Free. Yes. Right? And you guys are a left-leaning slash progressive nonprofit. I would say that we are primarily an investigative journalism shop, but we're informed by progressive values, as many muckrakers are. But so you guys, I want to talk about the business model and many other things, but let's let's talk about mm-hmm. business first. So you guys take advertising, right? We do. Oh, if I click Print on and a, digital, yeah. But you're mainly supported through subscriptions and memberships. Are they, Subscri- are they different things? Donors of various kinds. So subscriptions, people who make essentially a digital membership bid or give us money one time, um, and those all range from people who give us a little bit of money to a few nice people who give us quite a bit of money. So a subscription gets me a print magazine. Yes. But I can read the website for free. There's no you paywall can. there. Yeah. As you probably noticed, because you pay attention to this stuff right now, everyone's very interested in, in charging people for access to, to content. Have you guys thought about putting a paywall in front of the website? We haven't, because I think it's important to our mission to get the work that we do there out to the widest possible audience. And frankly, we found that people are happy to give us money because we tell them that they should, and it's important to support journalism, and they do. So it's it's subscription as sort of a vote. Right, in favor of the work you're doing more than it is. Yeah, I mean, I think some, some people, uh, you know, grew up with a print magazine and they they just think about us that way and um, they like to get physical magazines, um, you know, as I still do as well. Um, and so that's sort of the primary vehicle by which they give us money. But even the, those folks often give us money on top of their subscription. And 
Donald Trump has meant many things to the media. It has, um, he has, yes. For a lot of publications, there's been a Trump bump, a big a big spike in subscriptions. Um, are you guys seeing that? Subscriptions, donations going up since we the had, election? We've had a big bump in subscriptions, donations of various kind, including we've, we've really made a plea to people to think about supporting journalism on an ongoing basis and not just a one-kind gift. So we've made a lot of sustaining donors online. Yeah, how does that work? I was just because I was thinking about this in relationship with the Times and other folks who've seen their subscriptions go up in, in response to Trump and how they're going to sort of try to retain those subscribers six months, nine months from now. Exactly. I mean, it's one reason why we ask people to think of a model that's an ongoing donation. A magazine subscription is one way, but as I said, people like to give more than just that. And and also because it just helps any institution regulate its cash flow, so right? What, so what, how does a sustaining membership work? Do I give you, like, I commit to paying you for five years? Basically, or? it's like, you know, five bucks, 10 bucks, 15 bucks every month off your credit card. When you're looking around in your frequent commenter on Twitter, mm-hmm. as, as one <laughs> does right. on Twitter, and you look at sort of the travails and pivots people are going through as they're trying to find sustainable business models, do you guys think you have one? I do think we have one, and I think that ours is one of the few that's going to last long term for for most institutions. So I think the digital ad market is plummeting for everybody, and it's just not a great you know hook to hang your hat on. The fact that you're giving away the stuff for free on the web bothers you less because you're not making much ad money from it to begin with. That's well. Uh, huh. I mean, we make a decent amount of digital ad revenue, so I'd certainly You'd like, like to have. It. I'd like to have it. Yes, I would not like to lose it. But I think that we're trying to kind of build a ship for the long term, and those, you know, the CPM as they call it, the cost per thousand, um, the unit cost is going down. It's going down for everybody. It's going down in every category, and so this is why publications do a lot of the things that people don't like you know, constant clickbait stuff and, you know, other tricks of the trade to, because I just need more more page views. But it's not necessarily like a in-depth considered reader necessarily. Got um, it. Do you think that the mix that works for you, is it the fact that you're sort of mission-driven? And so you've got a, a readership slash base that wants to sort of support you sort of regardless of what's happening week to week. Is there something about the fact that it's nonprofit that makes it more sustainable or, or it's a combination of all of the above? I think all of those things helped and the fact that we, this has basically been our business model for the long haul. You have not pivoted into this. Right. We have not we have not pivoted so much into into various projects. Um, but I also think the, the other thing that you're seeing it with the Times, the Post, whatever, people just want to support journalism now. And so you know, our our uh, pitch to people is if we're one of the places that you think does valuable work, that you should do it and you should do it on an ongoing basis and also subscribe or give to these other things as you see fit. So we think it's, you know, I think the media did not need to make a case for itself financially um, because it was so subsidized by advertising for most of its, you know, most of the last century. And that is going away. And other business models need to be explored. It's why some places are getting so into events. Do you worry about what happens? I mean, not everyone can subscribe to everything. And do you worry about sort of what happens to sort of what readers do if they don't have unlimited funds, if they can't support you and the Journal and the Times and the Post and five other publications? Since ads are going away and that, that revenue is declining, what happens to those readers? 
Well, right. I mean, so I think... How are they served? Two things that we have to broaden the base of people that will support us, um, which is both just broadening the audience per se, but also just making making that connection of loyalty to a broader uh, base of people who already read us. But I do think there's an overall crisis, and I think there's, you know, we see it every day. There's layoffs every day. There are things shuddering all the time, that there's a culling going on. And frankly, the only way that's going to stop, at least in the short term for a lot of places, is for people to step up and support what they think is valuable. Now, people pay 80 120 bucks a month for their cable TV bill. You know, that is important and entertaining, to be sure. Um, but if you think that, you know, watchdog journalism is important, then you support things like us and, you know, great papers and whatever else. Curious, do you guys uh, have any kind of relationship with Facebook? Are you using Facebook to acquire subscribers? Are you just spending a lot of time thinking about how to distribute stuff there? Or is that not relevant to you guys? No, we do spend a lot of time, you know, thinking about kind of a strategy for Facebook, because as is true for us, true for everybody, that it's, you know, well over 50% of our of our traffic comes in via Facebook one way or the other. And we they've, you know, they've started to let you make in various ways, like make kind of pitches to readers about financial support. So I think that's encouraging. It's frankly been a long time coming. I mean, in a way, Facebook rests on top of all of the work product of not only journalists, but everybody just sharing whatever. Um, But for the journalism part, if if we're to believe what they always say, that they think it's really important, um, then they've got to at least help us figure out a way to support ourselves in this new environment. You ever think about uh, the politics and possibility of like a Facebook tax? Where Facebook distributes oh, some of the revenue I they've got. I hadn't, but it's intriguing. All right, let's let's we'll do that in podcast number two. Let's keep talking about the, the actual work you do besides the business. Mm-hmm. You guys made a big splash. Was it last year? Mm-hmm. The prison piece. Yep, thirty-five thousand words. Thirty-five thousand words. Um, Shane Bauer spent four months working as a guard in undercover. A, undercover in a um, in a private corrections facility run by what's was then called CCA. And yeah, it was a it was a big piece that, you know, we spent he was inside for four months. We spent another almost a year fact checking and researching and Have reporting you it out. Taken a project on that with that kind of scope that's No, that I think long. it's safe to say it's the biggest project we've done in kind of any way you want to measure. Why'd you bigness. decide to spend that much energy, time, money on that story? Well, it's been something we've covered um, over the years and we think was really important. Um, and Shane, who had been reporting on corrections for a while, really wanted to do this. And, you know, frankly, we weren't sure if um, if he would be able to be hired, giving his real name and, you know, the name of our parent company and all of that stuff. So, but he was. And he put that all on yeah, the work I'm, history, right? Yes. They're, they're not scrutinizing it that closely. No, okay. not. Um, because they're desperate to get people in because they pay $9 an hour for a really scary, horrible job. And they just w- rip through people. Um, so they're constantly searching for people to hire. And, and it, you know, the prisons are often in pretty poor areas, um, rural areas, and there's not a lot of jobs, as we all know, left around there. So, you know, they get a lot of desperate people taking these jobs. So you came out with that story. It makes a huge splash, mm-hmm. wins you the National Magazine Award. That's the yeah. Oscars slash Emmys for, yeah. for magazines. Actually, you just got nominated for an Emmy for, I know, for right? video-related stuff I know. for that. It's, I want to ask about video as well. It's 35,000 words. So mm-hmm. when it came out, I remember a lot of people saying, this is great. You must read it. And also, I haven't read it yet. <laughs> well, I mean, it is 35. You've got a vacation coming up, Peter. It's some light beach reading. Do you have a sense of how what percentage of your readers got through it versus looked at the first 
page, uh, first couple I, hundred words? I wouldn't say I have mathematical precision on that. I, you know, more than two million people have read it in some form or fashion. Um, how many people got to the end, got to the end in one sitting? I don't really know. Did we, you think it would take off like that, that it would have that kind of, that kind of reach? We knew what we had once we had it. I mean, I think with that story, with the 47% story, some of the other really epic stories for us. That's the Mitt Romney tape. The Mitt Romney tape, right. Like, we knew what we had. We knew it would be big. Did we know it would be that big? Yeah, I'm I'm glossing over This is you guys actually had the tape of Mitt Romney saying. Right. We had that. How do you describe the 47%? This is, this is a whole election cycle. Uh, God, yeah, it's hard to remember. But basically, Disparaging half the country. Yeah, he was saying they were kind of layabouts. And you guys had the audio and that went right. viral as well. Right. That makes more sense, right? That's a thing. It's a clip. You can share it. You can summarize it really yep. easily and pass it around. And it takes all of you know a few seconds to actually consume it as opposed to a 35,000-word piece. Well, I mean, I think the thing about a 35,000-word piece is it was, you know, it was watching somebody go to work in such an environment. and um, It's a movie. Yeah, it and it is likely to be a movie but it is gripping there's drama there's you know scary parts um so it doesn't it do, it's not a thirty-five thousand word policy paper i will say so there's an ongoing discussion about what people will read online what mm-hmm. they'll pay for online if they'll read short stories if they'll read long stories does publishing in a thirty-five thousand word story and then having it read by too many people does that prove something to you, or is that sort of a one-off because it's such an amazing story and you can't really draw a conclusion from that? No, I mean I feel like people will read long and heavy and gripping stuff. I mean, so long as it's good, um, they will do it. And I mean, there's you know I think there the readability on. Mobile has gotten better. Um, all of our phones are faster. It's not, you know, we don't we don't paginate all that stuff. Like we make it easy for people to read it. And you know, we had a lot of video work in there that you know was part of what just got us nominated for the Emmy. And those videos were amazing. It was pretty easy to get hooked on it. Yeah, good job, good for you guys. <laughs> and you did do video for it, mm-hmm. and that was planned from the get go that you would create an accompanying. We thought video. there were, there could be some video. Yep. Generally, people have yet to sort of figure out video on the internet, and when they do, it's sort of a standalone thing. It's the idea of creating a video that would accompany a piece is something I think a lot of magazine people did at the beginning mm-hmm. of the internet, or at least ten years ago. Mm-hmm. And everyone sort of discovered, ah, there's not really an audience for that. Right. And you know, maybe we'll show you here's behind the scenes of a Shaquille O'Neal cover shoot, but that's not super <laughs> gripping stuff. Right. What did you commit to making? the video for this for that project i mean it was basically uh one producer editing the interviews and some of the footage from the prison um and the chain took himself mm-hmm. right yeah so it was you know it was so easier to pull off in some way as long yeah, as you but, have but someone also, who can it was drop themselves we, into we did, prison we did definitely think just as a matter of sort of how to construct it and i'm not sure that we completely nailed it but we thought okay is it better to make one thing that's a half hour or should we make five or six things that are each about five minutes long um, which is still kind of long for online video but we figured the way most people would be ingesting these is either that we would put it online and it would sort of lead people to the story or they'd be going through the story and they're just like, okay, I'm going to take a break and watch this now. And it seemed to work. Did What percent of people who were reading the story also consume the video? That's a good question. I'm not sure I have a perfect what's your What's your that. gut? Um, I would say... I don't know, actually. Um, I mean... Uh, Do you think it's half? No, I don't think it's half. I think maybe 10%. Okay. 
But I don't know, I'd have to think about more than I can do on my feet here, if that would include just on the page versus other places. Right, but it's a minority it. of yeah, people yeah, totally. watch the video, but that's still successful for you to get that, if you get too many, too million well, folks reading a story. Well, I think it's story. also like for a piece like this, it's also verisimilitude, right? It's like this happened if you, you know, here you go. This is what it looks like. Like Shane's a great writer and was describing it very well, but some things you just want to see with your own eyes. So, Got it. Okay. So you're not going to see this ad, but you will hear it. We're going to hear from one of our fine sponsors just now. Okay. We'll be right back with Clara Jeffrey. This podcast is brought to you by The Art of Shaving. You've seen The Art of Shaving. They have these stores all over the world. You can go in in person. They will give you an old-fashioned shave with a razor. It feels great. You should do it. In the meantime, The Art of Shaving can help you at home because they've got your total routine covered. Shaving, beard maintenance, hair, skin, body, or fragrance. They've got award-winning products that are formulated with the highest quality botanical ingredients featuring pure essential oils. Of course you want to put that stuff on your body. The Art of Shaving offers a convenient replenishment service, which is a fancy way of saying they will send this stuff to your house so you get to save money and you never have to worry about running out. My listeners will get 15% off their first order and free shipping by using the promo code MEDIA when they go to theartofshaving.com and they use my special promo code MEDIA. Go to theartofshaving.com for the special offer or go to one of those stores I was telling you about. Talk to them in person. They will set you up. Thank you, Art of Shaving. We're back here with Claire Jeffrey. You may hear noise during this podcast because there's noise around here in San Francisco. There's construction and maybe a drone and sandwiches flying around here. But we'll make it sound good. Claire, you're editor-in-chief of Mm -hmm. Mother Jones. Um, Prior to this, you were running Mother Jones with Monica Bauerlein. Yeah, running the editorial side, right. So that's a promotion for you? Uh, yep, yeah, sure. Congrats. Um, thanks. How'd you, how'd you get to Mother Jones? Uh, I was at Harper's Magazine for about seven years. That was my dream job for a while. Good. How'd you get know. to Harper's? I had been an intern at Harper's, and then I went to uh, Washington to work at Washington City Paper with you know David Carr, who you know, and Jack Schaefer before him. So, And then I was called back to New York, basically. They offered me a job. So That's a pretty good arc. You, just, you went to Carleton College. How do you get from Carleton College to Harper's to City Paper? I mean, I the first thing I wrote out of college I was a investigative alt-weekly article about sexual assault on Carleton's campus. Um, and that story, um, along with others, kind of got a lot of national prominence at the time. So I was like kind of hooked on the journalism thing. That said, my my dad's a journalist, so it was... So you had an idea of this, sort of what that career percolating might percolating like. in the background there, yeah. And so you graduated at a time when magazines were still a thing. Harper's Magazine was still a thing. There was a career in journalism. Is this what you thought you'd be doing for the rest of your life? Do you ever know what you're going to be doing the rest of your life when you're 21? I no, but I, I kind of I I hoped no it would be something like this. I didn't imagine internet. I don't know right. if I that part. Sir. Right. So, you know, my dad was an editor at National Geographic. So I grew up in that environment, which was, you know, as you would imagine, both you know, lots of exciting things going on and also just this very big institution, particularly at the time. You know, my dad went to Antarctica on assignment. I have a picture of him and a penguin. He, he um, had so all I, the cool stuff that yeah, you get he, to do when you. Yeah, he was mostly an editor. Edit but National like, Geographic. Once in a while, he'd like deploy into the field. So. And how is this job different than sort of you imagined it would have been 10 years ago, 20 years ago, as you're sort of working your way up? Well, I think I think that one thing that's changed, and it's changed for almost everybody, and I don't think it's necessarily a bad change, and people dragged their feet for too long, but I think that 
people who are editors, um, particularly if you're the editor-in-chief, but even if you're just in pretty senior editorial management, you you just need to think about the business side, whatever model that is. You can't proudly say, that's the ad side, that's the business side, that's not my problem. Right, and you you have to kind of look at those. I mean, it's not, you know, it used to be like, you'd be worried about like ad adjacencies next to an article. And that, right, whether you're going to have an ad from, well, you wouldn't have an ad from private prison next to your private prison next was a, but right, right that kind of on the airlines thing. and with, with a right. Delta ad. And that was sort of the extent that editors mostly, um, you know, the, the rest was left. And a lot of them sort of like reveled in the fact that that right. was someone else's problem and they had and no it's in, you know, And it world. implies a lot of independence and I think that's all good. But, you know, it also, I think, led to publications not understanding the way technology and reader habits were moving and being too slow to adapt. And I think, frankly, too slow to demand of the business side that these, like, what is the trend line for these ads? Because... I hear things, but you know, I think if if editors had realized where the where the business was going sooner than they did, there might have been changes. Do you feel like you had sort of were able to peek around the corner a bit on what this business might look like because you have sort of an untraditional structure around the business? Yeah, I think that that's true. I think being a nonprofit, um, you know, we have you know how many legs are the stool now, but you know that we were both digital and print allowed us some perspective, but also being a nonprofit and always being, you know, willing, certainly, and increasingly insistent that people give us money on top of their print subscription costs, because if that's what they want. Um, and, you know, you were I, always clear that the, this was going to be something that was supported by your readers. Exactly. Directly, without, exactly. With, not just with their attention, but with their money. Yes. And I think, you know, we always made that case, but I think in the last year or two, we've we've made that a more explicit case in several ways. So we just did a better job of sort of messaging on the site. But we've also, Monica and I have also written a lot of articles kind of explaining the business model of Mother Jones, but also in general. So after Shane's story came out, we talked about, you know, that this cost us, we, you know, spitballed it at $350,000 to produce that. For a single story. Yeah. And by the way, 2 million views is a lot. But there are people who frequently generate that many views, especially if you count Facebook, right? All the time with stuff that takes them much less time, right? You can do it in 10 minutes. Sure. I mean, in some ways, a lot of the most viral stuff is it can be the cheapest. I mean, often it's very well thought out, but often it's just you got lucky. Right. But in any case, like at the when we wrote this article, I mean, it's, the number's gone up, but we sort of estimated like, oh, and we've made about $5,000 in digital advertising on this on this story page, like however many people had read it at that point. Which is why many people who are in your business and my business look and say, this is why you cannot do four-month-long stories that only generate 2 million page views, the economics don't work. They can say that, but I think the economics do work if you make the case to readers that if they want stuff that's not just cat videos, they're going to have to realize that just like they pay for cable television or whatever, that they have to support that. So let's talk about video a bit. You created video for for that piece. Mm -hmm. Emmy Award, congrats again. Or Emmy nomination, congrats again. But you generally are not in the video business. You're one of the few people who's not spending a lot of time. You're not pivoting to video. You're not spending a lot of time and energy trying to create videos. Why? Why is that? I mean, more than more than you might think. In fact, we just launched a program with um, two documentary filmmakers who are in residence with us um, to sort of explore the ways that 
documentary film can work better in a newsroom environment. So again, I think it's in part because we have the reader support model, we have the flexibility to sort of say like, this is something we think is important. We think documentary film is also struggling um, and its business model is evolving quickly in ways that are both good and, and perilous. And we think that there could be some real synergy um, and we find it an interesting project, like to help us figure this out. But to put a finer point on mm-hmm. it, right, you're not, there's a lot of folks I work with and in, in who are working in other organizations that are spending a lot of time trying to figure out how can we make video that will have the farthest reach on Facebook and then eventually how will we make money from that? And that clearly is going to be our future is sort of, right, the, the pivot to video is now this cliche, right? But the, But taking what used to be a company that published stuff on the web to creating videos, that doesn't seem to be something you're interested in doing. I mean, we do do it, but I, I you're not focused on no, it. No, yeah, and we're not pivoting and you seem to video. Skeptical about I'm it. skeptical in the sense that I don't think that you know fa- this is what Facebook wants to pump right now for its own reasons, and I think a lot of places are firing reporters. And great that they're hiring video producers. Don't get me wrong, but you know they're they're making a big bet, and just the order that you put it first, we'll make it, and then we'll figure out how we're going to make money off of it. Well, I haven't seen anyone really prove to me how they're going to make those costs back and you know video production is the, the, can the, be very expensive right. the, i mean the, the positive the not flip argument is there's 80 billion dollars in tv not all of it but some of it was going to come to the internet we should partake in that um the more sophisticated version of it i can't do it as well as some people i work with say sight sound motion people have always liked that people like to see things and mm-hmm. watch video and there's no reason we shouldn't be making that and sort of seeding that world to traditional tv guys or movie guys I think that that's true, and I think that there are some companies that are going to end up on top of that mountain, but I think a lot of places that are completely changing their business model are going to, as we've seen so many times before, like remember when everyone decided they wanted five iPad editions of their magazines or you know, whatever else. I mean, there's been so many variations on this theme, and it's this sort of panicky, oh, my God, this is the next thing. And somebody writes a really good deck, and all of a sudden, like, an entire company has shifted its priorities. In defense of the iPad magazine people, one, they had Steve Jobs, the best marketer of all time, telling him that he thought this was going to be a big deal. And two, I I think this was misguided, but it was an attempt to sort of recreate the magazine business or, or to save the magazine business, which is already sort of being atomized. But yes, I get your point. They, they chase after the next the new thing. You had a great tweet about it sort of being cat chasing the laser. Yeah. I mean, and th- I mean, there's with so it, many. With it, you had a video. I had that a video well. with a cat. Yes, with a chasing the laser. I mean, right. And I mean, I think, you know, another, another, th- I mean, <laughs> another thing that we're seeing is everybody rushing into podcasting. I think podcasts are great. I listen podcasts to hours of podcasts a day. And I think in some ways, like podcasting, that's costs are lower. It has the advantage of time shifting. How many and people are in this sharing. room right now? Three. Yeah, it's you, plus me, somebody on the phone, Eric, and Eric makes a ton of money, but that's it. Yeah, right. So it's it's cheap. Yeah, it's cheap, and it's we're great. not paying you, right? That's true. Thank you for the free for I, the free how content. Did I, how did I not demand money? But you know, I I think there is a sense. It's great that there's so much experimentation going on, but I think sometimes, or the degree to which the overall industry is just kind of swerving around somewhat crazily. Like you were saying, paywalls are back again, right? Like paywalls are back. Well, I mean, we've done that before. They work well for some places, and there's the various models. Um, What you can't do is put a paywall in front of something necessarily and just say, now pay. Right, exactly. 
Um, so, you know, I think the Times metered paywall situation is a pretty porous by design, um, and it seems to work, but I think it's also because they're inherently making the argument as that little screen comes up whenever you've logged yourself out somehow, you know, that we have 8 million Pulitzers, please support us. It's basically a reader support model that's, you know, it's, yeah. just, it's just not a nonprofit. You're free with advice on, on Twitter. I, I know you through <laughs> Twitter. I've met you once before, uh-huh. but we'd met on Twitter, and I feel like I know you reasonably well through Twitter. I was doing some cursory Googling, uh, uh-huh. and your, your first couple pages of results, many of them are stories about things that you tweeted. They're not great stories. They're not bad. Or, some are bad about you. Some are negative stories, mm-hmm. some are positive. Um, none of them are deep thought, right, because mm-hmm. so-and-so tweeted this. Does the fact that your tweets then become content for stories in the Daily Mail or The Guardian or whomever um, ever make you reconsider the velocity with which you I tweet? Sometimes. It's less that. Like, I'm more like a— Should we explain what some of the stories were about? Do you know, do you know some of these? I, which There's something about a Tomahawk missile. Oh, God, yeah. There's a bunch of these. Or, I mean, or, there, uh, or mo- a lot of folks will just say, oh, and also Clara Jeffrey said this right, in support right. of whatever thesis they're making. Fine. I mean, I the ones that annoy me uh, and does sort of not so make, make you give up on Twitter, but to sort of have a negative view of humanity, I think, are the people who intentionally take things out of context or like know you're making a joke but they want to like rile up their Oh, there was another, uh, there's a salon one about Bernie Sanders. Mm-hmm. Right, that guy. Yeah, that guy. Um, right. And that's, you know, I mean, A, people are reading without context. So if they've been passed particularly screenshots of tweets and they're not seeing I mean, it's like why I think so many of us have gone to threading in part to make a longer argument, but right. in part like it's not as easy to get away with taking my words out of context. But, you know, people people mess up and say dumb stuff that they regret. But um, you but you're not curtailing it. It's not it hasn't made you sort of reconsider hitting send. I mean, it has at times, and you know, but I don't know. I still get I still get a lot out of it. I was going over uh, the piece you wrote right after the election. Mm-hmm. Don't mourn, fight like hell. It's a very good piece. You should go back and reread it if you haven't read it. There was a line there that caught me. It said, um, "Social media." You were listing all the problems, everything that led to Trump and mm-hmm. the Trump winning. And it said, "Social media failed us most of all." And I remember that sentiment was super strong post-election, a lot of focus on Facebook and fake news. Do you still feel like you want to point the finger first at social media when we think about Trump and and that election? In two ways. So I think, A, Facebook in particular could have cracked down on the fake news problem. And not only that, but they changed their algorithm after being kind of trolled into something by some conservative groups, which, you know, wanted... This is the trending topic story. Yeah, exactly. And, but, you know, what that did was not only change the algorithm for, like, legit conservative publications, which, all you know, the more the merrier, but also the stuff that was masquerading as such or was just, um, you know, the original version, the original definition of fake news. But I also think Twitter in particular has allowed its platform to be a uh, method by which really unsavory groups of people organize and harass. And not just harass, but also like maybe more than we know, knew at the time, even when I wrote that, like really so there's no perpetuate. Argument, just, there's no argument that both those platforms have deep flaws, right? In terms of yeah. abuse, in terms of fake content. Facebook says it's done a better job at, at fake content. I guess my question is, do you think that we over sort of overestimated how important those platforms are for getting people to think about something, to change their mind, to vote one way, to not vote. 
Um, I think about it a lot now where, all right, now that there, everyone, there's glaring, there is, between you and everyone else, maximum focus on Trump and everything that's going on there. And there is a large portion of the country that does not care, that either doesn't believe what you and other mm-hmm. folks are publishing or knows that it's true and doesn't care. And that you could, Facebook could could be completely immaculate, Twitter could go away. And these, I, I wonder, I don't think those opinions would change. I think that's an interesting question. It's, you know, it's hard to, to prove or disprove a negative, but I, I do think that they allowed people to think two things, that they were reading something that they thought was news and really wasn't, and at best was inaccurate, but at worst was far worse than that. But also that it, it kind of poisoned discourse and hardened lines, and I think a lot of people pretended to be people they weren't on social media and intentionally stirred up fights and, you know, ganged up on mobs. And, and I also just think as an organizing tool, like whether it's for ISIS or like the alt-right, these platforms are letting themselves be kind of organizing methods for these folks. I, I still find myself thinking that I'm confused that the Internet is being used as a force for evil. It's still, I know that it is, and I'm no longer naive about it, but I still occasionally just reflexively think, well, if, if you offer the Internet and knowledge to large groups of people, they'll bend towards the light, right? Right. Um, well, I think we've learned not that that's case. pretty much not the case. And particularly, like, like in the old days of the Internet where it was just all out there and the people who were, like, particularly skilled could go find the Romanian novel they'd never heard of or whatever. Right, or find your right. stuff. Yeah, exactly. That, But that was, like, an, an actual voyage of discovery. And now people are being manipulated down down various lanes. And, I, you know, at worst, they're recruited into really horrible groups. And... Slightly worse than that, they you know start to just despise you know their neighbors, and I I, I do think that it is it is a uh, big threat to our sort of you know sense of decency to towards each other. Is this something you think the market fixes? Do you think do you I want mean, the I government the platform, stepping in? No, I mean I think the platform could fix it. That there's some really simple things that Twitter could do to just completely reduce some of this, and they finally started to. Um, but it's all about you not seeing the hate being directed at you. It's not stopping the hate from happening, and it's not stopping hateful people from organizing. Wait, you think Twitter can stop the hate from happening? Well, I think they could. I mean, they could do everything from like making you really register. They could, you know, they could be much more aggressive about banning. They could be much less. Um, do you think they should allow anonymity? I don't know. I mean, I think they should at very least tier. Things like the blue check mark no longer means anything if it ever did, but I think they should tier it so that if you're who you really are, you're being viewed more or less, you know, like you're you're being treated differently and identified as such. Someone who will give a real name and a real address, you know. Right. Of course, the president, we know who he is. and Yeah. There's a whole separate discussion about what he should do on Twitter. Let's think about that for a second. We're going to hear from another fine sponsor. We'll be right back with Clara. Today's show is brought to you by TransferWise. Do you ever need to send money internationally? Maybe you're an engineer, moved to the U.S. Maybe you're a business owner trying to pay suppliers in another country. You're a freelancer getting paid by someone in a foreign country. You should use TransferWise. When it comes to sending money, banks are stuck in the past. TransferWise is the future. Go to the future. It's better there. You pay into a local account, and TransferWise pays your recipient from an account in their country. Currencies don't need to cross borders. And that should matter to you because it lets TransferWise do things your bank can't. 
They charge one low fee. They give you a great low rate. And unlike your bank, TransferWise payments take seconds to set up. See how much you could save by going to TransferWise.com. You can download the app from Apple Store or Google Play. Once again, that's TransferWise.com. Transfer like I got to transfer money from one country to another country. And wise like I'm a wise person who listens to Recode Media. It's TransferWise, W-I-S-E dot com. Back here with Claire Jeffrey from Mother Jones. We were talking about the media environment and Trump. There's a story that got a lot of attention in the last year. That's the Gawker versus uh, Peter Thiel story. You guys had a preview of this story. We did. Because you were so sued by your own billionaire. You're still around, so it has a different resolution. This guy's a great name. Is it Frank Vandersloot? Frank Vandersloot, yes. So it seems like a made-up name. Is a real is a real person. Is a real person. Idaho billionaire. Yes. Sued you guys back in 2012. Yes. Because? He popped up on our radar because he gave a million dollars to Romney's election campaign, and it was you know it was one of those things that pop up in campaign finance uh, searches. So we wrote like, "Who is this guy?" Um, story, and he had had various anti-LGBT activities, including kind of going after journalists who talked about his anti-LGBT activities. And sure enough, when we did that, he went after us, basically. And and you guys made some small corrections to your story. What did he say he wanted you to do after that story had been published? Did he want a, a correction? What was, his, what was his stated complaint? I mean, to be honest, I think it was a good example of people who just have a lot of power and are not used to being crossed. Um, he, he wanted... Do you think he wanted if, if he'd taken down the story? Do you right, think if he would have taken it down, called it like Peter Thiel wanted to get right. rid of Gawker? If we'd taken it down and you know banished it to the hinterlands, maybe um, it's hard to know what somebody would have done if you had taken an action. You know, we we made some minor corrections, like it was a suit in a state court, not a federal court, that kind of thing, and uh, we we felt the story was valid and we felt the story was important, and we. You know, I think, frankly, didn't really understand what the issue, you know, why he was so aggrieved when this was clearly activities that he had not only done but celebrated. So at some point did you decide, oh, this is not about the story published. He would like us to go away. Uh, I think it was partly that. I think that because the landscape was changing about LGBT rights, even in, you know, heavily Mormon uh, Idaho, that I think he didn't want a spotlight put on activities that were a few years old. So it was partly that. But, I, you know, I really can't say. So um, you guys, but I, you guys I, you fought know, the case. Fought it the was case. Not, it was not like the Hogan case because he's, he's no, not Hulk we, Hogan and there were no dick we pics. Were, we were about to go to trial and uh, we got a, a summary dismissal from the from the judge. Three um, years. We spent, what, $2.5 million more than that? More than that, yeah. It. I mean, that's out-of-pocket costs plus the insurance. And and put that in context. You guys are, are a nonprofit, so I can actually go see your, your numbers. What is that as other percent of your cash flow or your revenue? What is, what is $3 million to a company like you guys? So I'm, it's a company your scale. You know, now we're about a $15, 16000000 million a year company. Revenue. Yeah. Well. Top line. Yeah. And then we were, I don't know, 12, something like that. So it was a real threat. And it was meant to be a mortal threat. I mean, he, he sued us for $74,999. So he would stay in a court where he was the biggest employer in town, um, that it wouldn't be vacated to federal court. I mean, it was designed to hometown us. 
And designed to break you, right? Because he knows what kind of resources you have. He knows what, how big your staff is. So getting you guys to fly up there for right. testimony, like all of it is designed to break you guys. So you won. Is mm-hmm. the, the case is gone now, right? He's not, he hasn't gone. come back. Is there anything you can do to, to future-proof yourself from this sort of stuff? Or is it just literally the cost of doing business now, especially now that he's provided a blueprint for it? Peter Thiel provided a very successful blueprint for it. Is this mm-hmm. just something you're going to live, have to live with? Well, I think, you know, we've always had an incredibly vigorous fact-checking and legal um, component to the work that we do. So... That is sort of what we do to future-proof ourselves. There is um, there is some movement out there to create like a fund for journalism shops that get sued in such a manner to sort of help defray the costs, um, which I think would be lovely. I think the people who are talking about that should do it. But you did. I mean, you did everything. You didn't. It's not like you were fact checking after the fact, right? You had done all the fact checking. You, you got a few things wrong, but but um, the fact checking is important. One because you get the stuff right, and also because it proves that you're, you're trying. Not, right. You're trying. You can't be part of slander and libel, right? So right. you have to prove that you were doing the stuff recklessly. Right. And if you've got a fact checking operation, you say, "Look, exactly. I'm trying to get it right." Yep. Exactly. But so even with all that, he was able to tie you up. Drain you of resource, not drain you entirely, but no, really, I mean, really, exactly. really cause you a lot I of think problems. at one point I calculated that for the cost of the overall suit, including the cost of our insurers, that would be the equivalent. His his legal costs were sort of the equivalent of, um, you know, buying a really f- fancy pair of shoes to me. You know what I mean? Like that I might buy a really fancy pair of shoes and be like, wow, I just spent a lot of money. But that was like a small drop in the bucket of, right. of his legal costs. So it's literally something that, that yeah, someone with his bill- kind of resources of can do without thinking twice yeah, about it. exactly. For you guys, it's life and death. It's your entirety of your career. Exactly. And it doesn't seem like there really is a way to prevent he or someone else can still tie someone like you up indefinitely in court. Well, the way to one way to prevent it is to pass a federal anti-slap act, which basically is like a anti-frivolous lawsuit of this description. It basically says when he loses, yeah. you, can, you can recover significant yeah, damages. Yeah, and so it, it basically makes people think twice about doing stuff that they're just doing out of spite. And, you know, if, if we had been able to move it to California, we would have had a slap provision in place. So, uh, it, you know, again, it really matters which state you're sued in. And which is why people try and venue shop. It's why Gawker, um, you know, was sued in Florida. So when you saw Gawker go through this and then lose, mm-hmm. um, as we're record- recording this, there's talk about who's going to actually own the Gawker.com website. It's being sold off. It was catastrophic for them. Did you think, oh, man, that could have been us? Or do you think, well, that was never going to be us because we weren't going to publish a sex tape? A little bit of both, maybe, but um, I did think once Teal was exposed to be behind that, that this was does represent a not only just a you know potentially mortal threat to to journalism, but I think also represents a incredibly disproportionate amount of power being accumulated and wielded in a vicious way by you know a few billionaires because they don't don't like you um, or they uh, have really thin skins or both. And at the same time, we've seen a rise of a right-wing media that is not fact-based, that's intentional. I mean, they can make the same argument about Mother Jones or the right. nation, right, and they're right. ideologically uh, motivated, but but their stories are often willfully incorrect. That's right. Right. Um, and then they're retweeted by the president. It's it's There's not an equivalence. There's not. And I mean, you know, I don't I don't know how often sites like that get, you know, 
often probably very justifiable, um, you know, takedown notices from people that they're slandering. Um, I have seen Alex Jones now have to apologize several that's times. That's right. He did. Yes, he did have to. He um, had to apologize to the Chobani guy, who yeah. is a billionaire, who has yep. the resources right, to go exactly, after him. Because, but by the way, he damaged his brand. Right. Um, so, again, though, I think part of the problem is just to sort of, you know, it's another measure of the sort of income inequality type situation that's happening in our entire society. And this is just this weird kind of corner of it. But it, when it's about hurting a free press to protect not even the, the, the business interests, but often the, you know, egos of folks who don't want what they actually did to be public. Let's end this on a positive note. What's, what's the best thing you've seen come out of 2017 journalism-wise? Wow. I mean, I do think that the press overall has been reinvigorated and takes its mission more seriously than I think a lot of it did leading up to the election. I, you know, I think that the arms race between the Post and the Times is a sight to behold. It's amazing. Uh, you know, so I, I, it, we are seeing some of the best journalism we've seen in our lifetimes. Um, would that more of it had happened, you know, last year? But I am relieved to see that. And also that I think it is really sinking into people that they have to support it, whatever that means. Good. So people can support you by going to motherjones.com. You got a dot com even though you're a nonprofit. Good. Good for you. Yeah. Um, URLs are hard to get. We're at recode.net. Clara, this took a while to happen. I'm glad we made it happen. Thank Thank you so much for having me. Thanks to you guys for listening. Um, I'm reading a script here that says I've done almost 100 of these podcasts, which sounds right. It's also a lot. You can go find all of them wherever you found this podcast because you're smart. You know how to get it. All we ask is that you tell someone else about it. You can tweet about it. You can Facebook about it. You can walk up to some human and say, I think you should listen to Recode Media. I'm also going to thank our fine sponsors. And I'm going to thank Digital Media, which sells all those ads. I'll thank my producers, Eric Johnson, Beth O'Connell, Chris Basil edits this. Thanks to you guys for listening. We'll see you next week. Hey there, I'm Dieter Bone from The Verge, and I'm dropping into the podcast to remind you of something. Apple is going to release a new iPhone in September. They do literally every September, but this year it's going to be a really big deal. And so our podcast, The Verge Cast, is going to record in front of a live audience the day after Apple's announcement. We'll be recording on September 13th in San Francisco, and you can get tickets at bit.ly slash SF. That's bit.ly slash SF. We hope to see you there.